Hello and welcome to Cityware Selectors' Let's Talk About ESG podcast, which we are temporarily rebranding into Let's Talk About COP, ahead of the Glasgow Climate Conference. And joining me today is Ewan Murray, Chief Investment Officer at Federated Hermes' International Business. Ewan, thank you for joining us today. Margarita, my pleasure. Lovely to be here. So, Ewan, um, obviously with the conference being kind of a month away, I think, at this stage, uh, we have a lot to unpack and look at. But in terms of kind of what you expect to be done in there, because obviously there are multiple sessions, multiple targets, from the asset management perspective, what do you expect to get done <laughs> and why? Yes, well, in fact, it's probably true that most of the hard work has already been done um, in the sense that there's a whole load of preamble meetings which go ahead with the civil servants where the real legwork is getting done and they all finished on Friday. So if only we could get into the head of those negotiations, we would know exactly what has been agreed and what is probably out of reach. But let's be optimistic and consider a list of things that we would love to see get done. I think the biggest number one priority for everybody involved in, in climate science is to agree the rule book that will determine exactly how Paris gets uh, implemented. That's the Paris Agreement. Now, of course, everybody was hoping that that would happen at uh, the Santiago conference that then got transferred to Madrid, uh, gosh, almost two years ago now. Uh, and it didn't because there are simply a lot of difficult and complex issues in there to get tackled. But the key at the right at the heart of, of, of this Article 6 piece for me in that rule book is around carbon markets, carbon trading mechanisms and so on. So that may be a stretch too far, but let's keep our fingers crossed. The next most important one, I think, is going to be around climate finance. So we all know that back in 2015 uh, in Paris, and the agreement was signed and the developed nations promised that they would contribute $100 billion by 2020 and over the running from the period 2020 to 2025 um, to the developing nations to help them finance the necessary climate change. Now, uh, we are told that at the moment, peak financing has reached probably around about $80 billion. Uh, so we're at least 20 short. And it does, it's not clear to me where that gap is going to get, uh, is going to get filled. Um, everybody is looking to the US. But we already know that the Biden administration is finding it difficult to get some of their uh, current uh, legislation through uh, the various uh, various houses. So hoping that they'll get another 20 billion uh, for climate finance may be a stretch too far. So that's sort of those are probably the two really big ones. Beyond that. The UK um, has been very keen on hoping that we get to uh, curtailing cross-border coal investment. Um, again, I suspect that may be a stretch too far. We already know that when the G20 was meeting in Italy to discuss this issue, India, the negotiators from India were unavailable uh, and didn't join that meeting. That probably to me signals that we won't get much movement on the coal issue. 
And of course, the UK government has had a few issues with coal in Cumbria that make it uh, perhaps a less than credible uh, spokesperson to push this issue forward. And then there's the very important issue of the nationally determined contributions. Now, that in, uh, in uh, away from the jargon, what that really means is each country uh, puts forward uh, a set of promises, pledges that they will meet in the future in order to sec secure our path to one and a half degrees by 2030. And that meant, if essentially, that meant carbon reduction of uh, around 50% from where we are today. Now, what we know so far is that the NDCs that we have seen probably get as part of the way there, maybe slightly less than 20%. So that's pretty disappointing. Uh, all, being, all, all things being equal, today, current policies would suggest warming of around 2.9 degrees above long-term industrial average. The pledges and other commitments would get us to about 2.4 degrees but we're still a long way from that one and a half degrees that is absolutely critical. Uh, if, if any of your uh, listeners wanted a, a horror story to, to listen to before they go to bed at night, they could go and check out the differences between two degree warming and one and a half degree warming. It's one of those things that I looked up and sort of wished immediately I hadn't, um, but definitely worth a read if you want to know why we should be taking action now. So I think those are the really, really big things, um, and they cover that sort of ground between adaptation, I, what do we do to take care of, uh, of the issues that we know we're going to have to face, they, they deal with mitigation, what can we do to guard against some of the, those issues, they deal with finance, and then they deal with governance. So those are the sort of the four different buckets, and we've got four big issues there that we're trying to tackle. And it could be mixed a mixed bag uh, as to whether these happen or not. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned carbon trading mechanisms. Uh, so could you elaborate a little bit more? What is your expectation there? Because uh, from what I understood so far, it's important to set a globally accepted carbon price uh, and as a result, kind of incentivize companies to emit less. But for now, from what I've heard again, uh, that level is quite low and also not consistent across different countries and regions. So firstly, why this is important? And secondly, where it needs to be? So you're absolutely right. I think uh, having a global carbon price and agreed trading mechanism would be a, a huge, huge win. And that's in this Article 6 of the uh, rule book that we're hoping will, will be finalized for the Paris Agreement. It really matters because essentially that will govern the uh, the price that carbon is put into various financial models that will determine, uh, you know, both at the government and the corporate level, whether certain projects go ahead or not. Um, so this is a critical piece for us as financiers. Now, the, the big problem, as you rightly highlight, is that there is no agreed global price. Uh, it varies from a very small number of dollars to having spoken to some climate scientists more recently, they're suggesting to me that uh, perhaps we ought to be looking at numbers more like a $150 to $200. Um, really interestingly, the Biden administration uh, has uh, dug out a piece of work that was done by the Obama administration some while back for a, a climate price for use by the US government. And that's expected to come in around the $50 mark, so somewhere in the middle. But the key is that everybody's operating off the same price, and it's a realistic price 
that will move rapidly from our dependence on fossil fuels to a world in which renewables uh, drive uh, our, our energy consumption. The other piece of this is, of course, we have uh, entities like the European Union going ahead with, uh, or potentially going ahead with carbon border tax adjustments uh, in order to put uh, a greater tax on uh, imports from carbon heavy uh, areas. Now, that's, that's great in one sense, but again, it's not a global effort. At present, it's just a little, it's a regional effort, and we really need everybody to get behind that kind of metric. But there are huge issues between the different parties here. Whether we'll be able to find agreement in the minutiae is, uh, is very uncertain at this point at COP26. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess even in the context of Europe, if we even kind of like focus on the European Union specifically, there is Eastern Europe where we have countries like Poland that are kicking back even against the green taxonomy, for example. So is that the kind of like difficult negotiation we are kind of like up against right now? I think that's exactly the kind of negotiation that uh, that was going on. Clearly, as I said, it's finished as of uh, last Friday. And you're quite right to say that, you know, maybe the EU taxonomy is a great illustration of why this is so difficult. Every single country has a vested interest, whether that is, as you rightly say, coal for Eastern Europe, in particular Poland, but also, it, you know, biomass in Scandinavia. And what happens is you end up with potentially a watered down version of where you'd really get like to have gotten to. And that is probably true with uh, the EU taxonomy. And it's really interesting to see natural gas having been kicked down the path because, again, no agreement could be reached on that for the EU taxonomy. Uh, so one of the risks is that that happens with COP26. But of course, it's very easy to get caught up with COP26 and, and imagine that, you know, there's so much hope out there that, you know, five years on from Paris, well, six if we ignore the year that we lost from the pandemic, that this is an incredibly important juncture. And it is because if we're serious about being on track by 2030, the action kind of has to start, has to start now. But next year, COP27, it looks like it's now going to Egypt. We knew it would be somewhere in Africa. Egypt's come out as the uh, as the, the most likely destination. There will be another COP next year. But this just felt like a really good moment. Also having had the IPCC report recently come out, uh, a really good moment to get ahead of some of these issues. So the, I think there will be disappointment if, as you say, we get watered down versions or in fact, no agreement is reached at all. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned four very important pieces uh, to focus on, so that's adaptation, mitigation, finance and governance. Now, from the perspective of Federated Hermes, are there any aspects of the conference that resonate with you specifically? And if yes, which ones are those and why? So I think they all resonate uh, and they're all incredibly important. It, it, it's very tempting to sort of pick off your favorites um, and, I'll, and I'll talk personally in a second about that. But the key here is for everyone to realize that this is, you know, this is a global systems issue. We need to be tackling all of these pieces, uh, whether it's finance, whether it's governance, whether it's uh, the um, whether it's adaptation or mitigation issues. A personal favorite for me would be, and this refers also to COP15 in Kongming next year around biodiversity. Personal favorite for me would be to link climate change and biodiversity more closely together because we already know that 
we have it within our uh, within our capability. We're able to, you know, the, the planet provides sequestration of plus 40 plus percent of carbon emissions. So there must be something about improving our biodiversity and our use of ecosystems that will allow, would allow us to use that source uh, of carbon sink to you know, help on the climate front. So I think being able to look, as I said, being able to look at these as a one big systems issue is absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. And what I was wondering as well, uh, given how big the agenda is, because we have two weeks and they are covering multiple things and that's private, public finance, there is a, even like gender issue being raised in one of the days and then biodiversity in another. So. Given the current agenda, which sessions and discussion rounds asset managers or investors should be watching closely in your view? So I think, well, you're, you're right to point out some of the really interesting ones. And as you said, a, a, a session on gender and a, a session, another session that caught my eye was one on indigenous rights with respect to land. Um, so there will be some really important specific sessions. But actually, if you want to know whether COP26 will be a success, uh, you could just, you, you could do well to be at Glasgow Airport and to watch whether some of the big leaders start arriving. If we see big leaders turning up for any of the sessions, that probably means there's something big to announce. So that will be one of the most important things to be watching. You know, will Xi Jinping turn up, Joe Biden? Um, it'll just That for me will be the giveaway as to whether we've made a, a critical breakthrough on some of these topics. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the interesting side events, and arguably one of the main side events, is Investment Corp, uh, which is happening, from my memory, on 7th and 8th of November. And there are multiple topics covered in there as well, from renewable energy to decarbonization of transport and things like that. So again, from the perspective of Federated Hermes, are there any topics that specifically speak to you or your work that you've been carrying out in the last couple of months? Um, so any, any thoughts in that direction? So along with all investment firms, we're doing a huge amount of work to uh, look at our net zero commitments and our Paris alignment promises and to work out how best to uh, make sure that our portfolios meet those targets. Um, Now, it's, you know, the, the critical piece is how do you bridge that gap from investment to hardcore climate science? How do you deal with the RCPs and socioeconomic pathways? How do you make sense of those vis-a-vis your portfolio? Um, all of those are really tricky topics. So anything that will help to shed light on if there are preferred methodologies that are coming through that most people will be comfortable using, that will be incredibly useful to our work in you know, having a little bit more certainty about the future direction of our travel for portfolios. Mm-hmm. So if we zoom in, for example, on the decarbonization process per se, so obviously kind of like there are big ambitious targets that are quite far away in the future. So when we are talking about decarbonization, what is realistic to achieve and where the biggest kind of like pressure points are, which sectors, for example, and what can investors do about that? Well, um, <clears throat> maybe let me address that last one first and then come back to the, uh, you know, what can investors do and, and which sectors. Um, so this is the, the, the really tricky bit for me is that we're still in the investment world engaged in this uh, uh, 
or involved in a debate between should we engage or should we be divesting and excluding particular uh, sectors and that for me is a debate which will continue and i think you could make strong arguments for uh, divesting where you thought that there was literally no chance of a particular industry or sectoring sector uh becoming uh you know changing in such a way that it'd be compatible with a one and a half degree world um else we should be engaging because for example, if we are the uh, if we are holding a, a fossil fuel position and, and we sell that today, who buys that? It, it's isn't had no uh, our getting out of a particular sector will have had no real world economic benefits. Uh, it may well, in fact, have gone into private hands or the particular asset might have been nationalized. We're seeing oil companies, oil and gas companies selling off uh, particular assets to back to to governments so at the end of the day what's most important is for us as investors to be engaging in our holdings to make change happen and that's the only way that we're going to make real change divesting to my mind it should only be used in extremists uh, it, it's not a powerful tool in isolation Mm -hmm. And when we talk about successful ways of doing it, because I know that you are very active in that regard, I think you're part of Climate Action 100 Plus as well. Uh, so what is the most effective way? Maybe also you had some successes recently, something that you think worked really well. Uh, so if you could elaborate on that, that would be great. Yeah, so I think the uh, the important thing is to, uh, for any engagement, is to work out what are your key material issues that you're engaging on there should only be a couple if you're talking to a company about more than a short handful of issues it tends to get too noisy you have need to have some very specific objectives in mind and our experience tells us that in, uh, a decent engagement can take up to three plus years and then you need to have a series of milestones that you know will get you along that path to your final achieving your final objective and they have to be realistic and measurable of course so a really successful engagement is you know it, we aren't likely as as federated hermes to be able to do it on our own it will involve many many parties and lots of pressure from different shareholders so i think there's a really good strong argument for a degree of collaboration on what best practice and what best outcomes look like when we get to this work and as you quite rightly said climate action 100 provides a perfect forum for that kind of work and yes um, i was reading over the weekend one of my colleagues in our engagement arm sent out a, an update on climate action 100's uh, engagement work and there's some really really promising stuff in there none of which i can remember the precise details of uh, and when I zoom in on sectors, for example, in fact, because, well, now the conversation is other sectors that can't make the transition if we want it by that specific day. And then the second one, kind of like the ones that actually don't have maybe necessary tech to make it happen. So where is this situation harder for starters? And then secondly, is there again something that asset managers can do in that regard? Yeah, sorry, Marguerite, I did promise I'd come back to sectors and then completely forgot about it. So great. great. No Thank you for bringing me back. You're absolutely right, though. So uh, clearly, uh, transport is you know, sort of everybody's number one favorite. And actually, it strikes me that we've gone down, uh, we've gone a long way down that road to solving at least automobile 
uh, with electric, uh, or the progress that's been made in electric vehicles and battery technology. Um, it strikes me also that you, there are a, a sort of couple of interesting breakthroughs in the world of hydrogen, particularly around green hydrogen rather than blue or gray, um, which will really help with, uh, you know, with uh, trucks, buses, uh, ships, and also there's, you know, I've read recently some, you know, maybe some promising uh, breakthroughs and innovations with respect to air transport as well. So that transport strikes me as kind of on a journey, and we are in, you know, we have a decent uh, chance of, of flipping that sector. Next on the list is one that probably doesn't isn't front of mind to everybody, which is really around land use, food, and ag agriculture more generally. And that's about lifestyle change and strikes me as being far harder to, uh, to, to get success in, in a successful outcome in, um, much more down to the individual. But again, there's some really great investment opportunities in alternative uh, food. And, you know, I, let's hope that that continues. The sectors that are really hard to abate because there isn't yet an obvious um, replacement would be things like steel and cement. Um, although, again, just reading some academic journals recently, there's some really interesting stuff going on in, in you know, alternatives to cement. And uh, I read up in Sweden, there had been some, uh, uh, it's not at scale yet, but but uh, folks have been trialing uh, an, a green steel alternative. So, it's possible. Um, there is a huge amount of technological innovation going on. And I think if we can focus on that, plus getting nature to help us by doing the vast bulk of the, the sequestration legwork, then we're actually probably in a pretty good uh, situation. And a lot of that innovation is going on inside existing firms as well as startups. So from an investment perspective, um, you know, we should continue to do uh, as we have in the past. Uh, and, and you know, diversify across both you know, new new companies and and those that are currently in existence, and we can engage and encourage them for uh, you know to carry on with that R and D work. Mm -hmm. uh, talking about corp and what policymakers can do, because obviously there is a lot of pressure on investors and um, kind of like retail clients and uh, institutional investors all want asset managers to do something, which is something they are, they are doing if they are part of the collaborative engagement and things like that. But there are some things that are beyond investors' reach, which is policymaking and incentivizing those sectors through specific kind of like structures handed down from the government. Um, so from that side of things, keeping COP in mind, what can be done either on the global level, which is much harder, obviously, or even kind of like locally in the UK, what would be kind of like the policy movement that you would welcome, really, especially given your holdings and what you are trying to do towards decarbonization, let's say? You're, you're absolutely right, because, of course, asset management doesn't exist in this vacuum where it, on its own, it's going to be able to change uh, change the world. It, it, you know, as we said earlier, this is a, a systems issue. So, government policymakers, regulators, central banks, corporates themselves, everybody needs to be uh, working towards exactly the same aim. What does that actually look like? Well, we talked earlier about uh, the the potential for a carbon tax or 
carbon uh, adjustment mechanisms, that would be a huge win. Uh, we, we know that work has been done around regulation, around disclosures. We know that central banks are starting to put a huge amount of pressure on banks with respect to uh, risk scenario analysis and have they got enough capital. Um, so all of these things need to get done. I'm not sure there's, you know, it, it would be unreasonable to pick on just one because everything needs to happen in, in order to make sure that one and a half degrees makes a real, remains a realistic target. Mm -hmm. And you alluded earlier to the difference between uh, 1.5 and 2 degrees warming. So again, without going into horror stories too much, what should you channel your kind of like energy um, towards as an asset manager if you want to kind of like keep it within manageable bounds? In terms of asset allocation? Asset allocation, again, engagement, um, and yeah, can, can anything again be done maybe at the conference or any agreement reached at the conference to tackle that specific aspect? I'm not sure there'll be anything done to tackle that specific aspect at the conference, but um, you know, asset managers will already be uh, concerned with both transition and physical risk of climate change. Um, I think we've got to keep on top of, of what that means for underlying assets. It's very tempting to, to sort of look at the portfolio level without maybe dropping down to really consider, you know, what you know is is my fact factory of this particular company is it exposed to sea level rise? What does that mean for uh, the you know are the supply chain implications for a particular company? So all of these things are you know that's where the world of asset management is moving slowly, bridging that gap to climate science and making use of that additional information in the decisions that we make on an everyday basis. Mm -hmm. And Euron, I don't know if you attended any previous conferences, and if you did, it would be interesting to know what the difference is actually with what we had in the past and this one, and why there are so many hopes kind of like put on kind of COP26 actually working. So I I, uh, I I can't claim to have been to any previous COPs, although we uh, was on the periphery in Paris. Um, I think the reason that COP26 has taken on such a degree of importance was, of course, it, it should have happened last year, which would have been exactly five years after um, Paris. And many things in the Paris Agreement were meant to have been done by within a five-year period. Uh, and of course, uh, the way in which uh, these climate negotiations, negotiations work, it does seem to be chunks of five-year blocks are the way in, you know, that, that's the sort of the natural timeline in which people think. I think it's also critical this year because of uh, what we know needs to happen by 2030, so emissions reduction of 50%, for us to be sure that we are on the pathway to one and a half degrees uh, and, and that's absolutely critical. Now, lots of great net zero promises have been made and lots of folks saying that they will adhere to the Paris Agreement. The next stage is to unpack some of those and to get into more detail. Uh, it would be great, for example, if at this COP, we the, the Chinese could be persuaded that moving from 2060 to 2050 as a target is possible. You know, that would be, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's perhaps not one of the main issues, but it would be a lovely outcome for COP26. So COP26 feels important because it's the, it should have been the first, uh, the first climate conference of this decade, the 20s. And we know that we've gone from 
uh, a period of discussion to the 20s being a period of need for action. So I think that's why COP26 has just taken on this huge importance for everyone. Ewan, thank you for, very much for joining us today. Not at all. You're very welcome. Lovely to chat.